Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest today is actor and comedian Paul Wilson, known for his roles in Office Space, The Larry Sanders Show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Cheers. And now, your Sexy Boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome, well, welcome to, to the... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought I was supposed to... Oh, Stop uh, No, this is your script. Here we go. No, okay. no. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And I'm Paul Wilson. No, no, you're not. I'll fight you for that. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm Phil Proctor, playing Paul Wilson. And today we're actually talking to Paul Wilson, the real Paul Wilson, with two L's. Yes. And a, a, a personal friend for many, many, many years, a collaborator... Uh, not in France during World War II. No, that's a different guy. Uh, and and because I've known you for such a long time, I can't remember anything about our history together. I think the first time I saw you, you were in the pool at Wendy Cutler's father's house. Oh, really? On Vista in Hollywood. No, there's a memory. Oh, yeah. my goodness. I remember uh, when I lost a contact lens in Billy Wilder's pool. But I don't think you were there then. No, and I, I think that's a better name drop than... Uh, <laughs> Than Wendy Cutler's father. Wendy Cutler's father. How did you happen to be in Billy Wilder's pool? Uh, Firesand Theater was writing a movie called The Odyssey, uh, which was a modern, crazy take on the story, the classic story. And there was a producer, I think her name was Phillips, and we were having a meeting at Billy Wilder's house. Billy was away, so we uh, managed to take a couple of Picassos off the wall, (laughs) which helped, you know, to fund the movie. It was the headiest, high-flying Hollywood experiences that the group had. Uh-huh. It was a real Hollywood story, especially since the movie was never made. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes it a typical Hollywood story. Yeah, typical. <laughs> You're our first second-time guest. This is the first real time because it's the first time I was with uh, the tall and funny and hawk-looking and loquacious. Uh, Larry yes, and Larry loquacious. Hankin. Yes. All right, we should explain again to to our our, our fan out there. Uh, we originally did this show at well, Ted, you can tell it because you it was your great idea, you idiot. Yeah. Tell us about it. Well, we had this idea of of having a real lunch because Phil and I had been having lunches for. That's a nice jet. That's a big jet. Yeah, that's a big jet. It's probably a corporate jet. Just hope it doesn't drop any blue poop on us. We actually got the shadow of the jet fly over the backyard. Yeah, we probably got a glitch in the DirecTV transmission (laughs) there. (laughs) For those of you tuning in and hearing birds chirping and planes flying. Van Nuys Airport, yes. The busiest general aviation airport (laughs) in the United States. And there are hummingbirds, too. Well, we started doing the show at uh, the famed Shea J restaurant in Santa Monica. And uh, we we decided to have a real lunch and a real conversation. And what would happen was nobody ever got lunch. No. And then the plague hit. But before that all started, Paul Wilson came down and was one of our very first guests on the show. It's and you can hear it. It's the show with uh, Paul and Larry Hankin, but uh, now here we are, over well over a year later, seeing you for the first time after the plague. Yeah, I, I barely recognized you guys when you came <laughs> in. Um, well, but we took our masks off, and then you know, you. Yeah. Yeah, I went a moment of fear, and then yeah. uh, <laughs> it was not a home invasion. <laughs> We're outside. Yes, We're so, out of the bunker. So I think it's time to change the name of well, the show. Well, the name of the show is. Phil and Ted's uh, Sexy Boomer Show, Bunker to Bunker. 
So what are you proposing, <laughs> well, Sexy Ted? We're out of the bunkers now, thankfully. We we're, we're vaccinated. I guess we could call it house calls because we're going over to people's houses. Well, that's nice. How about face-to-face or uh, in your face? In your face. Welfare check? <laughs> what? Well, it's been a long time. Hey, we should have a contest, and they should send us at our website suggestions for the new name of the show. Sure. What do you think? It'd be great. But we're here. We're just. We just wanted to say we're out. We're out. Did you notice now? Everybody looks like they they just shaved their beard off because the, oh, because the sun hasn't been hitting. <laughs> All right. So, in your life and career, how in heaven's name did if you if you go to IMBD. IMDb, that, Internet I, Movie Database. IMDb, L-U-Q-T-S-U-V-I-W-X-Y-Z. You'll see an enormous list of Paul's appearances in television and films. And I copy and pasted your resume on IMDb, and it was 11 pages long. I didn't have enough paper. <laughs> oh, you should use the smaller font. Oh. Paul, where would people know you most from? What roles? Weight Watchers. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Safeco. Well, the Safeco commercials were great. Yeah. A gift late in life. Uh, And working with the wonderful Phoebe Doran. Yes, bless her. She was with Michael Dunn, remember? Yes, little fellow. Little person. And they did some... She was a little person, too, but she was just a diminutive... small. But they, you know... Diminutive girl. They they had an act, a cabaret act. They worked at Hungry Eye, and and they also did several episodes of Wild Wild West. Michael played a con man hustler, and she played his mom. Oh, yeah. And she sang, and she's gorgeous. Yeah, she is. That's wonderful. But in terms of, like... Uh, entertaining television series oh, okay. and things like that. What was yeah, your you mentioned safe goes away. <laughs> They're like three uh, tent poles to my career, okay? Uh, it's Gary Shandling's show with a side dish of several Larry Sanders episodes, Cheers, and Office Space. Right. Those are the three things that people would remember me most for. I love the Larry Sanders show. Yeah, Larry Sanders is a great... That was like the fruition of what uh, of what Gary was... He, he was, was absolutely doing, brilliant. Yeah. He yeah. really was. Rip Torn is one of my all-time favorite actors. Rip was quite a character. I have a funny Rip Torn story. Oh, please. Now, Rip Torn played Larry Sanders' producer. Yes. His Freddie DeCorva. Yeah. The Larry Sanders' offices were directly across from the uh, Seinfeld stage uh, at CBS Radford, and they added a second story during the hiatus. The first time I went back there, I noticed that that there were there were two windows at the front of this face facing the stage, uh-huh. and one of them had been filled in with stucco. And we had a friend at the time who was had been in the grip department for years and said that what happened was Gary came and saw that his dressing room and Rip's dressing room both had windows facing that direction, and he wanted his dressing room to be better than Rip's, so he had Rip's window covered. <laughs> Now I can tell these stories because I have no career anymore. <laughs> it really won't after this. And, and everybody else is dead. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Gary's death was a real shock. Yeah, it was so unexpected. You know, he he had a lot of. I mean, once I went there to visit, I, I, I'd been I'd done I'd finished the show in the morning, and he said, "Stick around after lunch. We'll hang out for a while." So I stuck around for two hours, three hours. Never came back. He never came back. Never came back. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Gary Shanley was a strange person. Yeah. And he knew it, and he spent his life, as I discovered later, trying to be a better person. Yeah, he wrote the Zen Diaries, Yes, exactly. Larry Sanders showed, I heard that it was sort of improvisational. 
Ish. What was your role? What character you played? I played three different characters, Manny, oh. Moe, and Jack. Yeah, at the same time. <laughs> the, I, I played, the first one I did was, was a guy who sold uh, uh, promotional gift stuff, you know, uh-huh. tote bags and robes and stuff that they give away on shows. And then uh, I played his business manager who lost $3 million. I remember that. As a gambler, you know. Yeah, right. And the last one I did was I played the brother of the cue card guy. (laughs) Uh, And uh, on Larry Sanders, yeah, I would say there was was some. I mean, they were loose. Gary wasn't uh, possessive about particular specific words or anything. And and the the scene, my big scene with him... uh, in that in the show where I was his business manager, that was mostly improvised, and he was he was great to work with because he gave me obstacles, and every actor wants to overcome obstacles. It gives you something to play. Yeah, push know? against. Right? It gives you you know it gives you objectives and stuff. So yeah. So anyway, yeah, I was really I was really happy. I honestly usually don't like to look at my work yeah. at all, mm-hmm. but that's one I can look at not only because I had a false mustache on, but because. <laughs> Because I was really, I was really happy with it. Now, when did you do Cheers? Cheers, uh, I, I actually did a few episodes. I did an episode in the first season. What year? Was what year was that? Nineteen eighty-one or eighty-two? Yeah. See, what amazes me about your resume is that because we all know those of us who are actors and get cast in television series and things like that, that once you're locked into something, you're not supposed to be able to do anything else. Well, you know what I mean, but, but you, I did. It's Gary Shandling's show. They didn't want me to do anything else, any any other uh, yeah. recurring role. Your contract. They really. Your... It was really out of bounds for them to ask for that. But I decided, you know, well, I will. Uh, and so I stopped doing Cheers. But I did the, ah. I did the first few episodes I did of Cheers as different people each time. Aha. But the first time I was a, a guy who knew all the words to the Bonanza theme song. <laughs> But frankly, that was a nightmare for me. And George, I knew George before already. because George went. So George said, you know, this could be a continuing thing for you. You could be a guy who knows all these TV themes. And I'm saying, no, don't wish for that. Because I have real trouble uh, memorizing uh, lyrics and and the pressure of having to be there with the word on the note. It just killed me. And I was, you know, I I thought I was, I I missed some stuff. You wouldn't know it in the middle. Because nobody knows. And then there are a whole bunch of different sets. Is it unusual to do multiple characters on the same series? Some shows do it and some shows don't. For instance, Curb Your Enthusiasm doesn't. If you've done, unless, you know, if you're playing yourself, that's another story. But uh, but if you played one character, they don't want you to play another character. That show is improvised, right? That show, well, yes. You, 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 get a, you get a scenario. Uh, and basically a set of uh, a, a, the, where the scene has to go. the way it, Where it starts and where it has to wind up. And then you just do it over and over again, and uh, you know what you can do with tape. You know you couldn't do it with film in the audience. Could, you couldn't do it on Cheers, mm-hmm. right? You know, those days of Cheers, these big big series, that's an era of Hollywood that's now kind of past as well. I'll tell you, when you see a show, I, even now, I I don't think the show dates very much. I mean, it is old fashioned, quote unquote. Yeah, but it captures an era. Yeah, it does. It does, and it captures a, a setting. I mean, really well. And yeah. it, it's a collection of great characters and wonderful actors. Yep. Jimmy Burroughs, who who was one of the producers and the director, said they captured uh, lightning in a bottle. It's true. It's everything came together. Yeah.
Shelley Long. Oh, Shelley, yes. Yeah, she, she, yeah. she uh, said that one of the reasons they did that funny kiss bit, the air kiss bit, was because they were worried they were going to break their teeth if they actually made contact. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's how that bit was born. They were trying to save their dental work. <laughs> Your resume is absolutely chock full of a tremendous variety of television and film appearances. When you have a resume as long as yours, you obviously figured something out. I figured out how to type it up. <laughs> I have no idea, but I do know this, and it's, it's, a, it's a shibboleth that work begets work. So, and one thing I've been fortunate in is that, that most of the things that I've done have been high quality things, yeah. okay? Not every little thing, but but when you're when you're in something that a lot of people see, yeah, more people become interested in you. And then uh, you know, so I've there was a period of time from say the middle '80s until 1990 or maybe a couple of years beyond that, as long as Cheers was on, where I would get offers a lot of time, and and those were usually for better things. I don't think I ever turned down an offer. Like Lyle Talbot said, the secret to his success was he never said no to anything. You know, <laughs> right. Which is why he's in uh, so many of those Ed uh, Wood, Ed oh, Wood Ed. movies. I think that's one reason. But you know, the, I I got my. There's a great deal of luck involved in everybody's career. Sure. The first network show I did was called Sirota's Court, which was sort of like the Night Court premise, uh -huh. except it was Fred Willard uh, as as the prosecutor. Prosecutor. But the point is, I had no words. Basically, I had. Mm, 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 because I played a guy who had uh, who was, had been a tattoo artist, and a Swedish sailor came into the shop drunk, and I gave him the tattoo. And after he sobered up, he came back and beat the crap out of me. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wearing a cast on my arm and a cast on my leg and a bandage all over my face. Uh, that's what I call casting. <laughs> <laughs> it's right, yes. And how about your, your film career? Uh, Office Space is the one that you're best known for. How did that come about? I was reading for the Charles Brothers movie, Pushing Tin which was about air traffic controllers. Yeah. And I read for that, and then I walked out into the hallway, and this lady I didn't know came over and said, you might be good for this. Why don't you come in and read for this? And it was office space. Wow. You luck. See, luck. Being in the right place at the right time. I, I came up with a line that there are clips all over the internet. The line is, uh, uh, and, and this is not going to be working here anymore anyway. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, and I was the greatest looping session that I was ever in. I was there with Mike Judge, who's a genius. Yeah. Uh, and we're going through the cues, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to doing these things, and, and I say, I have no trouble hearing that. Do you have any trouble, Mike? Mike, no, I don't have any trouble with that. Well, let's just leave it the way it is. I mean, people who know when to stop messing yeah. with it. Yeah. Because we never, you, it, it's very, very hard to get the original yeah. gestalt. That's you know? right. You can say the words and they can be in sync, but you know. Now, ADR for, again, for our folks out there who aren't acquainted with the business, is additional dialogue replacement, looping and dubbing, which is used, oh, a, a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, I, I was in looping groups for, 30 years, you know, putting in, uh, replacing voices and adding backgrounds and uh, speaking different languages and stuff. And it's a, it's a very exciting and entertaining way to make a living, overdubbing as well. Did you do much ADR work or? I, I did quite a bit. I, um, it's also a great way to learn a lot about the business. Isn't it though? I had gone to a Photoshop on Melrose a few blocks away 
and was coming out of there with my photos, and Howard Hessman drove by. Howard and he stopped Hessman. and said, come up to my place. So, uh, so now, did I, you know Howard then? Yeah, I knew him from San Francisco. Right. He was in the, uh, the he, committee. He was in the committee. He said, follow me to my house. And he lived right in there. He lived on, uh, on Gardner Street. Yeah, I remember By that. Franklin. And he was, he was in the loop group. I already knew um, Carl Gottlieb and Allison Kane mm -hmm. uh, from past trips from the committee and also. Now, Carl Gottlieb, of course, wrote Jaws. He wrote Jaws. For those who don't know. Yeah. And Allison Kane was really like the, one of the people who started, allowed improvisational actors to really become groups that could go in and, and uh, do this work. This was revolutionary in two ways. Because it was. It had been the. The, the playground of, of, of producers and casting directors who would get their girlfriends the jobs. <laughs> and then they also used to use a lot of library sound, which was stuff from other yeah, projects yeah. that they would just slap Drop in there. In. So this, this was a big change. And also, and so in a lot of ways, it was like a big party. So your improvisational history up in San Francisco, is that right? Yeah. Our group called the Pitchell Players formed when Roger Bowen came west from Second City to join the committee. Uh -huh. Because he knew Alan Meyerson, who was directing the committee. He had worked at Second City also. And uh, they needed somebody, and Roger wanted to move out. So he and his wife, Ann, started before I... I was in Oregon going to school. And it was my, the end of my junior year, and I got a call from one of my friends from high school and said, "We're we just met this uh, lady from New York who's... Uh, who's starting a, an improv group, and do you want to join the group? And I said, uh, sure, you know, because all the, I'd never really performed, but, but I was always, from my youth, uh, you know, starting with Stan Freeberg and... Yep. Uh, Bob and Ray. Uh, Bob and Ray, of course, and, uh, but Stan Freeberg first, then, yep. it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and the Goon Shows. On, uh, you know, they had those running on KPFA in the 50s. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Ernie Kovacs and all that. Yes, so, all my idols as yeah. well. And then, and then Nichols and May, of course. And uh, oh. So I was primed for that. And you grew up I, in San Francisco. I grew up in San Francisco. And the committee had opened when I was in high school. And I went there as often as I could, hmm. you know. So I was, I was really ready to do something, although I hadn't really been a performer. I was yeah. on the stage crew and the PA crew when I was in school. But I'd always envied the performers you know i just didn't think i could do it yeah but i'm doing it anyway <laughs> say that? so that's an odd way to to get into the business well i know? didn't even think about it as getting into the business because this was a group of people who well in the first place four of us knew each other from high school yeah and uh we were all lefties and now, wait a minute left-handed or radical <laughs> i don't know not south Boston. okay yes left uh, left adventurous yes what brought you down to los angeles i'll tell you what brings me down no 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 not today <laughs> then okay the the pitchell players were were working at uh, a church in north beach which had been converted to a satanic worship <laughs> <laughs> no uh united church of jesus christ <laughs> um it was a place called Intersection, uh, Arts and uh, Society, or something like that, huh. you know. And uh, and the guy who ran it was a was a reverend named John Williams, and we were. Oh, he became the composer later. No, no, it was oh, different. No. John Williams. Oh, uh, and uh, uh, he was really an interesting guy. We worked there for several years. We built the stage there. Huh. The stage was built by Roland Pitchell. 
Pitchell of the Pitchell Sounds Players. Sounds familiar. Well, but yes, but he was actually the bartender at the committee. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it was named after him. Yeah, it was named after the bartender? Yeah. <laughs> How'd that happen? Ann Bowen was at a party. Yeah. A little drunk. Yeah. And we were all trying to come up with a, a psychedelic name, you know. Ah. Surrealistic Pillow had just come out, you know. Yeah, so, anyway. And we, we, we were unable to agree on a name, and Anne was at this party and just decided as director she had the right to name the group. And she was talking to Roland Pitcher, and she says, why don't we call it the Pitchell Players? <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> so, except nobody knows how to spell Pitchell, and I'm not going to tell them. No, no. <laughs> oh, but anyway, uh, so uh, what was I saying? Yeah, how did you get down to L.A.? Oh, I, 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 I don't say in a car. Oh, I, I already said it. Oh. Too late. I, I, um, uh, we were, were uh, working on a book show written by Roger Bowen mm -hmm. in San Francisco and looking for a venue. And at that point, we had already performed a few times at the Ash Grove on Melrose. Yep, where a fire sign yes. used to cut its teeth. Right, and um, and they had several fires. <laughs> I think you called yeah, them. The yeah, the Ash Grove was burnt down. They had three but, fires, I think. Yeah, it was a very lefty club, and, uh, and, and right-wingers burned it down twice. Well, yeah, anti-Castro Cubans did the first time. That's right. And uh, with machine guns and Molotov cocktails. Oh God! Yeah. I didn't know it was when that. was this? This was 1969, and we yeah, were yeah. we were supposed to play. We were working with Country Joe McDonald. Yep, Country who was Joe married to Robin Menken, who was in oh the yeah, Robin Paris. Menken, right? Oh. And um, forgive me, folks, but all these people uh, resonate with this old boomer. If these names resonate, though, you you obviously need to tighten the screws. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and we had a great time. At the Ashgrove, by yeah, the way. Yeah, we did too. Then one time, uh, a talent scout from De Clark Productions came to the show. And he said, he likes it, you know, lefties. He said, oh, you have any material that isn't quite so political? <laughs> no. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. But, and, you know, and, and we, so we opened the, our own club, the Pitchell Players Cabaret. Ann and Roger put basically everything into it. They sold mm. the house mm. in Trancas, which is probably worth about six or seven million. Now I have no idea, uh, and uh, and and uh, made it into a, a, a beer and wine with uh, with food mm -hmm. cabaret, and uh, we all joined Equity and we got an Equity contract. It always wow. been an Agva house, yeah, which means it wasn't a union house. It was a variety <laughs> of artists. Yeah. House, right. So this was a book show. Where was it located, by the way? At the Improv. Oh, oh, it was at the... 8162 Melrose, yeah. No, wait, wait. So the Ashgrove was located. Yes, there. that's where it was. And then you took over the Ashgrove? We, the... Then we took over the Ashgrove. I and then uh, Bud Friedman bought the business and opened right. the improv there. Which is still going strong. Yes, it is. I don't think Bud has anything to do with it anymore, and I don't think most people recognize it, but it was a great place, and I lived right around the corner on Kilkia. Oh, boy. Sure. You know, so I just... <laughs> so there you are in the Petrol Players, yeah. feeding people and getting them drunk. Right. <laughs> um, this is how I got down here. <laughs> was because they wanted to do the show down here. What then happened was that uh, because we had an equity contract, we all of a sudden had equity. Breathing down your neck? Breathing down our necks uh, and, and basically not letting us do things. Oh, dear. So we wound up being the only group of people in the world who could not perform there. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know. Because they could book acts in, you oh, know, oh. basically like a variety thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but we couldn't do. This. They could they could call people out of the audience, 
So uh, wow. this lasted for a will, little while, but we weren't getting paid, and uh, I went back to San Francisco for the. For Were you getting fed and getting drunk? <laughs> Only if we rolled people. <laughs> well, you know, some people were actually starting to work then. I wasn't, but um, but there was a guy, uh, uh, African American actor uh, called John Anthony Bailey, who actually got a job on a Sid and Marty Croft series right away. Oh, uh, and unfortunately, it affected him <laughs> badly, and uh, he became a coke addict. And I mean, it's just it's a sad story because he was really. Uh, Quite yeah, a wonderful actor. Uh, share in common the loss of some wonderful comic minds to over overdoses and things like that in those days, yeah. you know. 1969, 1970, and 71, they were particularly deadly yes. those, those years. But I, I also, when we were doing that, I, I, you know, I met Al Franken and Tom Davis, and uh, I, I, I met everybody in The Gap, and they used to do shows there. I didn't, unfortunately, see the fire sign there. Because no, it must have been bad. when I, I went back to San Francisco for several months. Yeah, we said, oh, he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. The coast is clear. <laughs> but but the, uh, the Gap, I don't know if you saw their, their review, sort of really was, you know. Yes, I did. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. They were very, very clever, very witty. But, see, the, you the can't gaps. judge a book by the way it cuts its hair. Say what? <laughs> it was a Jackson, brother, uh, Jackson 5 parody. You can't. You can't tell a book by the way it cuts its hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the credibility gap began at uh, KRLA, I believe it was, when we were doing Radio Free Oz. Yeah. They yeah. would come on after the show. And Richard Beebe, who was like a head of the news department, he was the one who inspired them to do topical comedy about what was happening in the news. Uh, yeah. Again, pol uh, political satire. And satire is really what fueled us, yeah. us fools, in in those days yeah you know it, and in those days you didn't have the woke movement there wasn't any political correctness it was political incorrectness which was part of the fun why do you suppose it was tolerated then compared to now it wasn't as public well it was left-wing for one thing well I mean, they, yeah the the crowd but i think it had to do with the audiences that we attract yeah and i and i know i know for sure that uh, that there was an undercurrent especially among women because even like in 1966 or 67, 66, I went to an SDS uh, conference in uh, at the University of Illinois. And SDS stands for Students for Democratic Society, and it was a big confab. It was there were a lot of people there, and but one thing that happened was that a bunch of women started saying, "We're not going to make your dinner, and we're not going to get we're going to get your coffee for you," mm -hmm. you know, which is really where the the street level women's liberation movement began. Mm -hmm. So it was like, uh, get you, get your act together. So that's not exactly political, but you know the whole concept of social. Political. It's just, that's the social politics, <laughs> sure. But but the the idea of political correctness was a joke yes. on the left. The meetings would go into the middle of the night, and people say, "Come on, let's just settle on the thing that's most politically correct, and then move on." You know. Yeah. And it was a joke. Politically correct meant something that everybody could agree on that seemed to fit with whatever the mission of the group it was kind of a, a riff on conformity yes yeah, you're right well it was it was a it was a, a sarcastic it was a, yeah. a ironic yeah so uh and but i you know having had a lot, a lot of friends who were much more active uh, in sds and other movements than Politically, i was yeah. uh they said their policy was always because there was so much infiltration they had to perform a lot for the, 
for the people who are infiltrating, but they always adopted the second most radical suggestion because uh. they assumed that the most radical one came from the Asian provocateur. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so right. um, I'll tell you, that was so much fun, though. Growing up at just that at that time, you know. Yeah. I mean, I I dropped out of Reed College after three years because I lived in San Francisco, and it was 1966, you know, and uh, this improv group and all this other stuff. Yeah, so, there was more to learn in life and on the street than there was sitting in a. And this is when the diggers were making stew and 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 50 pound oil drums on Haight Street, you know. Yeah. I mean, and there was a free store where you could just walk in and take stuff. Wow. You're supposed to. You're supposed yeah. to leave stuff too, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it was a great, and that's the that's the milieu in which the pitchel players, the pitchel players were created, you know. So wonderful. That resonated for years. I mean, into the mid '70s. I think it's still there, although it's not outwardly there. Yeah. You know, I mean, what the new left is all about. It was anti-Stalinist. It was yeah. community-based. It was let the people decide. It was, you know, uh, I actually I went to college with. Um, going to Reed College, which was had a reputation for being radical. Uh, Dalton Trumbo's daughter, Mitzi, mm. and uh, and the son of the, uh, the head of the Communist Party in Los Angeles, Dorothy Healy, and uh, a couple other people, the Red Diaper Babies, the son of... The uh, Red Diaper Babies. I've never heard that term. Oh, yeah. That's kids whose parents were, were communists, yeah. We're speaking with Pil- Pil- Walson. <laughs> We'll be right back. This is David Duke, and I'm running for president. I can change the face of America. I changed my own. Some people say I'm a Nazi. Some people say I'm a Klansman. Well, I'd like their names and addresses. Come on, America. Give hate a chance. I'm Dave Duke. Check under the hood. You might like what you find. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. To hear all the Sexy Boomer Shows, go to SexyBoomerShow.com. Please tell your friends about the Sexy Boomer Show and help us build our audience. If you'd like to be notified when a new episode is posted, press the subscribe button in your podcast player. Back to Phil and Ted and their special guest, comedic actor and activist, Paul Wilson. Welcome back. We're having an appalling conversation with Paul Wilson. Paul, you growing up in San Francisco at a really interesting time. There was a real transition going from the beat poets to the uh, free love movement. And I was really lucky in high school, too, because we had such a great group of people who were smart and funny, yeah. you know. Yeah, I everybody got good grades, so they didn't have to worry about that. It was right. easy for them. And, then, and everybody was just really funny and really woke. Yeah, I hate that expression. I know, but it's yeah. it's appropriate for that. Yeah, I suppose. But yeah, so I was uh, conscious, I guess. So I would, and my friends and I would always go out to North Beach before, before, while it was just at the tail end of the Beatnik era. So mm. like the Coexistence Bagel Shop wasn't there anymore, <laughs> but there was still there was a place called Happy Things with the the puppeteer Wolo did shows in the window oh. uh, every night, and you know on Upper Grant and. Uh, there were and and jewel, little jewelry artisan jewelry yeah, places yeah, yeah, and yeah. still uh, still the way it was in the old days. So uh, and then the old spaghetti factory was a great place. Uh, and you in those days you could go there and drive and park. San Francisco now it is a money driven city. It's the center of technology. But back in the sixties and seventies, it was really a wholly different city. There was money there. There was a financial district, but it was we keep them contained. 
you know. Yeah. I moved there when I was six. I dragged my parents, mm. kicking and screaming, from Minnesota. Mm. To uh, and and in those days, I really have vivid memories of everything being huge. Of course. Yeah. Sure. But. Uh, Air and the sky and the and the old-fashioned traffic signals with the they're oh, called the birdcage signals. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and and it was really like an outpost. It was a very definitely it was a western city. Yep, you know, it it wasn't uh, overcrowded, and the 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 tallest building was called the Rust Building, and I think it was thirty-five stories, something like that. And then there was then there was Coit Tower, and when you looked at the skyline, it was this slightly tall building, and then Coit Tower over there, and. You know, so and, beautiful. Yeah. And and now all those things are buried. Yeah. Yeah. And and the new many of the new buildings are ugly. I guess I'm just trying to capture the spirit that, that San Francisco once was. So you have the you have the the North Beach thing, which really had was really sort of uh, 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 a matured uh, colony of the spores that came from New York. Because so many of the beach were from New York. Or the East Coast, uh, Ginsburg, and you know, I mean, all so um, they were transplanted to San Francisco because it was sort of wide open. It was it was much freer, and uh, and a lot of them back there in the East would get in trouble with the with the cops because the cops were all Irish Catholic cops, <laughs> you know, and they hated these people. And Lenny Bruce was up against right. it too. But, oh yeah, but he was, you know. He loved San Francisco, too, for the same reason. We were talking about being a lefty and all. I mean, I, I guess being brought up in San Francisco, it was hard to avoid it. So have you always been politically active? Yeah, it was a very democratic, very politically active city, you know. Lifelong liberal, Democrat. Yeah, and then I became, I, I became radicalized when the uh, Subversive Activities Control Board played the city hall. They had uh, hmm. hearings, uh, you know, red, red scare hearings in the city hall. This was the organization that determined who went on the attorney general's list. It was an executive branch structure. And this was when, you probably remember that this happened, the fire department came and washed all the demonstrators down the steps with high, in a real like Selma move, you know. Yeah. And uh, that was in 1960. That's the thing that, I was in junior high school, it, it radicalized me, yeah. People think right now things are so tribal and so divided and violent and scary. Compared to the 60s, not so much. What is your take on where we've ended up and how we got here? Interesting about the 60s, uh, Republicans weren't the way they are now. That's right. Mm -hmm. I, my father knew a guy who worked for the German press agency. Uh, and he had uh, press passes to the 64 convention. So I went, mm. long hair, beard, oh, wow. with, a, with a floor pass, you know, mm. and I could just go up and talk to people. I, I met George Romney and... Uh, and um, this is the year of Barry Goldwater. Yeah, I came out with a bunch of demonstrators, okay, who were outside. And where was this? At the Cow Palace in San Francisco. The Cow Palace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were all Republicans. And they were, many of them were liberals. Rockefeller was a social liberal. Yeah. And that doesn't exist anymore. And at the same time, the Democratic Party was, had two basic, uh, you know, caucuses. They had the liberals and they had the segregationist South. That's right. And uh, which created a lot of compromises, necessary compromises. Goldwater didn't succeed, but 15 years later, the Reagan Revolution happened. 
deregulation and trickle-down economics. 40 years later, here we are. How do you see where we're at right now? I mean, some people, like myself, think there's a civil war going on. It's just sort of quiet. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you um, because, like in that period, you have two different realities. Right. I mean, the people in the South convinced themselves it was about states' rights. It's a totally different way of looking at life, and, uh, and honestly, the, the, way I, the big picture I see is America could be a great country, but 40% of it is essentially dead weight, you know, as far as bringing us. Now, we look at, you know, newsreels, just movies anywhere, set in other countries. They all have infrastructures that are so much more modern and friendly than ours are. And, and what we've become, well, Russia, was, we've become Russia, but uh, in terms of how antiquated everything is, but we've really become old Europe. We've become the reason why all those people came from Europe because of the stagnation. All the wealth was at the top. There was no opportunity at the bottom. This country is becoming that way. Do you think it's a kleptocracy? It's a, it's a plutocracy. It's all those things. Well, it's like the Gilded Age on steroids, you know, because when you have, when you have a business model in which one man, Jeff Bezos, mm -hmm. can be worth half a trillion dollars, mm -hmm. And his people have to pee in cans, his employees. Yep. That says one thing to me. They don't pay their employees enough money. That's right. And when they talk about redistributing in income, they, they're thinking about taxes. But the first place is wages. And we need a new strong union movement. Yes. But the, the ground is so much more difficult now because of the amount of information that they can get on everybody and blackmail people. How do you see it playing out? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, the, as far as I'm concerned, what usually happens to the Democratic administrations is the Republicans completely ball it up mm -hmm. because what they siphon all the money out and give it to the, their wealthy donors. And there's not an investment capital and they don't want to pay anybody any money and they want to automate all the jobs. What is this? Driverless cars. What do you think that's about? It's not about progress. That's about eliminating jobs, cutting labor out of the picture. Yet they want everybody to have a job, just not with me, you know. Well, that's why universal basic income is going to be inevitable, I think. Absolutely, because, you know, honestly, there's not work for everybody. But if they have, a, they can do something useful that, that doesn't pay well, you know. I think a big turning point was when discount stores, uh, actually it had a lot to do with Chinese manufacturer or Asian manufacturer of goods, when they started proliferating in the 70s. Because I remember you go into a store and you'd buy something and, you know, you'd pay what the price was. Mm -hmm. uh, then when these cheap stores started coming, they were all non-union. And uh, so, much, so much of the work went overseas and most of the unions were killed. So people didn't have very much money anymore, but they could afford to buy the shit. Mm -hmm. What they couldn't afford was housing, education, medical care, you know. Uh, and, and that's what's happened to this country. It's been hollowed out. Until there's a solution for that problem, the, the, the effect on people who are, are essentially ignorant, let's just face it, because they've been kept ignorant. You know, you go to an average small town in the south or the, or the mountain west, and listen, my in-laws in South Carolina, although they are Christian conservatives and are big supporters of Trump, are also admirable people. Hmm. Very hardworking, very open and friendly, and um, and hospitable. 
and loving people. You know, they just have this different mindset. And in the old days, it didn't matter because there was a liberal consensus and you will out of these people have sort of, you know, uh, outlier ideas, you know, it's a vestige of slavery and all that old South kind of thing. But it sure is nice to go down there because the people are very friendly. Yeah, true. Um, but now it's like it, they become powerful. They're not a majority, but they have the power in the right places so they can rule the majority. And that's the danger we face. Now, if we lose the House of Representatives because people say, the Democrats didn't do anything when they were in, because Mitch McConnell is so good at blocking everything, exactly. that the same thing happens every time. As I was saying, a Democratic administration comes in to try to clean up the Republican mess. They have to spend all their time basically on defense. And then the Republicans come in and talk about abortion and drugs and get reelected, you know, and take over again. And the same thing happens again. And it's very frustrating. And I don't know what to do about that cycle. Since 1960s, 70s, when unions started to lose their impact, that's when wages started to stagnate. Sure. It's right there, but yet the wealth class has skyrocketed, as has the GDP. But the people that were left behind were all the middle class. And that's the scary part. Three people having more wealth than 50% of the country. Digitization that's done that, because it's not like they make stuff in the traditional sense. That's right. So the only kind of people they employ are either very skilled, uh, you know, IT workers and programmers and drivers and stalkers, you know. So there's nobody in between. I guess the only answer is comedy. <laughs> it's our... Um, Consolation. That's what uh, the talk shows and all the jokes were about during the Trump period was just got. And that's what West Wing was about. It was just solace, you know, shelter from the storm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> well, thank you. I haven't had a conversation like this in a long time. A year. At least. More, yeah, more. So. Well, but, you know, every time that... You and I have had an opportunity to spend some time together, usually over a martini at Musso and Frank's. Oh, Musso's. I've learned more about your life and your trajectory, and I, I and have learned to admire you finally. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for letting us come to your backyard and uh, be in your face. You can stay here if you want to do yard work. Mm. <laughs> had a great time. Until we meet again. Till we meet again. What a fascinating conversation. Yeah, well, every time I talk to Paul, I learn something new. Yeah. Because he knows how to make things up. <laughs> it was great. Well, Phil, good to see you outside again. It's good to be outside again. Yes. So where are we going to call the show now? Either in your face or face to face. What do you think? I think in your face. Something like that. Yeah. We'll okay. figure it out. Okay. All but right. we're out of the bunker. Yeah, out of the bunker. Until next time, I'm Ted Bonnet. I'm Phil Proctor. See ya. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Paul Wilson. David Duke for President was written and performed by Patrick Weathers. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a earnest guy. Stay tuned for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for seasoned hipsters, man. Thank you.